Good morning, everyone. It's great to be in worship with you. I'm glad that you've joined us this morning, especially if you're visiting with us. I'd love to meet you, maybe introduce you to a little bit more of in town, and maybe this is a place that you can belong and serve. If you are visiting with us or here for the first time, we've been going through a series on the book of Acts, or at least the first third or so of the book of Acts, and we've come now to Acts chapter 4. Now, in chapters 1 through 3, it's one victory after another. We see the church exploding with this unhindered growth, and the apostles are teaching this new thing has happened. They're teaching religious Jews that this old story in the Old Testament, their big story that they've been living their lives by, has now been finalized and launched in a new way in the person of Jesus. And now they're learning what it means to find their life in this big story, in the big story of Jesus Christ. And many people are coming into, streaming into the church and saying, I want to be part of this. I want this story to be my story. And what does that mean? And what does that look like? Well, one thing it looks like, and we see this pivot in chapter 4, is it looks like a life that's going to encounter opposition. And in many ways, in some ways, persecution. And we see in chapter 4 and throughout much of the rest of the book of Acts, persecution, dramatic persecution, fall upon the church. And that's the context as we read our New Testament reading this morning. Acts chapter 4. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So was Caiaphas. John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Referring to a healing that they had performed just prior. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which We must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could not could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. 
But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we encounter this text, it does seem in many ways so far off because we don't encounter in this context, most of us, persecution of this sort. We're not called before councils. We're not called to account in formal ways what we believe. But Lord, let it, let it ring true in our hearts hearts and lives this morning. Let us understand how it is relevant for us. Lord, we don't need just more information, more knowledge, but what we need is your spirit to take hold of us, to give us a sense of your presence, to change our affect, to give us empathy for those people that you have empathy for, to give us pathos for the things that you have pathos for. Would you take hold of us? Would you give us courage like Peter and John, in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in this morning, let it be the gospel of Jesus and what he has done in our behalf that would give us courage and freedom from fear. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we all have everyday fears, right? They may be spiders, they may be snakes, they may be clowns, or it may be public speaking, or it may be asking someone out on a date. Now, today, maybe that fear is a little bit lessened because you can sometimes get away with asking someone out on a date over text or over, the, over email, but in my day in high school, we had to do it over the phone. And I never liked talking on the phone, and asking a girl out obviously created the opportunity for me to be turned down. And I picked up the phone one day with great trepidation, and it was one of the old phones that you picked up off the receiver, and it had a, had a long cord in between it. I don't know if you've seen those before, but you don't have a send button on this phone. The last digit is the send button, and so when I got the number from this girl that I, I wanted to ask out, I had seven digits, and I didn't know her very well, so I picked up the phone, and when you hit the seventh digit, it it dials, and it's pretty instantaneous that it rings on the other end, so keep that in mind. Well, I had these seven digits, and I dialed three and then hung up. And then I stirred myself up with a little more courage, and I dialed four, and then I hung up. Replaying in my head, what was I going to say, and imagining all possible responses that could come. And so then I picked the phone up again and dialed five, and fear would overcome me. Then I'd dial six, and then I'd get paralyzed, and I'd hang up again. Well, finally, I dialed all seven numbers and then panicked and hung up. And I thought I had stopped in time, and actually I had, but the only problem was that my father downstairs, at the same time I was hanging up, quickly he picked up the phone to make a phone call. And what did he hear? Ringing. And he stayed on because he was curious and waited for someone to pick up. Hello? Hello, who's this? 
can I help you? Well, I heard ringing when I picked up the phone. Well, well, who is this? This is Bill Prentice. Oh. And then from downstairs, I hear, hey, Brian, you have a phone call. And I think that in that it was high school, I sort of made up something about, you know, accidentally hanging up or whatever, but I was absolutely petrified and had to figure out how to explain to this girl that my dad had called her. (laughs) Now, we all have fears of being embarrassed. We all have fears of being turned down. And what was my fear in that moment? It wasn't that I wouldn't get to go out on this date. That would have been fun. My biggest fear was not being wanted, being rejected, being turned down. We all have these types of fears of being embarrassed, being called upon and not knowing the answers, of asking someone out and getting turned down. We have fears of losing our jobs, and we often mitigate these fears by taking fewer risks, by pretending that we don't care, by walking around with a swagger, acting supremely self-confident, even if we're not internally. But aren't these fears, aren't these surface-level apprehensions indicative of something going on deeper? Aren't these panics brought upon by fears or maybe terrors that lie much deeper inside? Maybe we worry about losing our job, not because of the economic implications, but because we've tied up our sense of self-worth and meaning and value to the world in that job. And we fear in losing that job that others won't value us anymore. We long to attach ourselves to someone else, but we're so afraid of rejection that we can't ever get close enough to have real companionship. We don't raise our hand in class or volunteer for a risky venture at work because someone might discover that we're not as intelligent, we're not as capable as we've led them to believe, and we're scared stiff because we'll be seen as insignificant. What kind of gut-level fears do you carry around day to day? And what are they preventing you from doing? How are they preventing you from living the life that you want to live and that you feel called to live? And how can you move forward in the face of those fears? We're going to look at just one answer. The answer to that is really multi-layered. But in this particular episode, we'll find an answer of how these early Christians, particularly Peter and John, dealt with persecution, opposition, rejection from these very powerful people. We're going to look, first of all, just briefly at fearsome persecution and then freedom from fear. Fearsome persecution is mostly in verses 1 through 7, and we need to see the who of the persecution. And There's two parties or two groups that make up the Sanhedrin. It was a collection of a variety of competing parties, but if you, if you will, divided in the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Those are the two sides of the aisle. And the Sadducees show up in verse 1, and they were the wealthy aristocrats in Israel. They were the pragmatists. They were willing to, to compromise and work with the Roman overlords, and they also brought in some of the the Greek Aristotelian philosophy into their theological system. They believed that the Messiah had already arrived, so Jesus certainly couldn't be the Messiah. 
They didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in angels. And they didn't believe in a physical resurrection. And so risking an oversimplification, if you'll let me do this, we're going to think of them just briefly as the theological liberals. And in many ways, they were. Now, their sworn enemies on the other side of the aisle were the Pharisees. And the Pharisees appear in verse 5, and they believed in living very holy, very moral, very upstanding lives, and they demanded that everyone else do that as well. And they believed that if the nation could be holy enough, that that would be the context that would invite the Messiah to come. Now, another oversimplification, but let's think of them for our purposes as the theological conservatives. They hate the Sadducees for compromising with the Romans, for bringing in this syncretistic way of thinking with with Greek philosophy into the Jewish way of, of thinking about God, and for stripping the faith of its supernatural elements. But strangely, we see these two parties, though on the surface having everything against one another and very different, collaborating to persecute the church to persecute Peter and John. These two parties share nothing in common ideologically, and yet they unite to oppose the early church. What does this tell us? And it tells us something about the why of persecution. A few years ago, NPR ran an interview with the widow, the elderly widow of the former Shah of Iran, and she talked about how strange the revolution was in her country in the late 1970s, because on one hand, you have these left-wing students that are marching to get rid of the Shah, and who do they have on their placards? What face? It's the Ayatollah Khomeini, an Islamist fundamentalist. They have nothing in common, and she said it was bizarre how these Islamic fundamentalists and these left-wing radicals united into the revolution to get rid of the Shah. What was going on? Well, it's much more than just about ideology or theology, but it was very personal, and it was about power. It was about setting themselves up and maintaining their power, and the Shah threatened them both. And these left-wing radicals saw the Shah as a puppet of the West, and so they linked arms with radical fundamentalist Islamists who were even more opposed to their basic beliefs than the Shah. Something similar is happening in the early church here. We have these two parties who have everything against one another in the Sanhedrin coming together, uniting, linking arms against Jesus and his people. Now, notice their tactics They don't dispute Peter's healing of this lame man. He's right in front of them. They don't even dispute the resurrection of Jesus. There were too many witnesses around at that time. They don't give factual or intellectual objections, but it's more personal. It is about power. It is about maintaining the current status quo power structure that has put them in power. The Sadducees and the Pharisees aligning together Liberals and conservatives operating off of the same core conviction. Let's get rid of Jesus. And what are they insulating themselves from? Acts 4.12, the claim that Jesus and Jesus alone is Lord. Because that challenges both of them. 
Though their external tactics, their external ideology is very different, they're both equally opposed to this new Messiah who is claiming lordship over both of their lives. Now, could that happen today? Could we see, though, see that happening in our current political climate? Well, we see, in many ways, conservatives and liberals both oppose the government, but in different ways. Conservatives want the government to stay out of their wallet. I'm doing it with the wrong hand now, left, right. Conservatives want the government to stay out of their wallet. Liberals want the government to stay out of their bedrooms. Both oppose the government stepping into their lives and limiting their personal choices and limiting their freedom and telling them what to do. Now, please don't email me. I know it's more complicated than that. But the claim that Jesus is the resurrected Lord of the world radically challenges both of these orientations, both instincts. If Jesus is Lord, doesn't it challenge us in our wallet and in our bedroom? Shouldn't it change the way that we think about money as well as sexuality? They look very different, even radically opposed to one another on the surface, but Jesus is making totalizing claims on their life and their power, and we can't have that. Challenges conservatives, liberals, and, yes, moderates. Now, we've looked partially at the who and something of the why of this persecution, but what about the what? What is this persecution all about? In the book of Acts, we have seen two things about the church, or we are beginning to see two things. One is incredible fruit. The church is exploding and growing, and now we see the coming of incredible persecution. And intuitively, we would think, well, there goes that. That's the bottleneck. That's going to stop the church from growing, and that's what these people think. But instead, the church explodes further throughout the Mediterranean basin and eventually the world. And the report of church history is that that same type of dynamic happens over and over and over. In fact, Christianity thrives when it is threatened and grows very soft and weak when it's not. You see the house church in China that is growing and exploding, they would say maybe because they're persecuted. Three kinds of responses to persecution. Or maybe it would be better for us to think about just opposition or rejection. Three kinds of responses, three kinds of Christians. One is the the compromising Christian, the person who, in the face of opposition, in the face of verbal rejection, in the face of persecution, compromises what they believe. These are the people with the finger in the air willing to, to cave on very core commitments. And this sort of Christianity doesn't really challenge you. And it doesn't challenge your friends. It doesn't challenge anyone because it just kind of moves with wherever the winds are blowing. If your convictions are unpopular, then you change them. And you begin to go to Scripture asking a very different set of questions. You're asking, what would be palatable? We compromise in the face of persecution, even if it's just perceived persecution or perceived opposition or maybe rejection. The second kind of Christian is sort of the reverse. They invite persecution. In fact, being opposed is kind of a sign that substantiates the righteousness of their cause. 
Now, being opposed can mean that you've been uncompromising. It can mean that you have integrity, but it can also mean that you're just being a jerk. They're compromising Christians, but then there's callous Christians. These are the kinds of Christians who picket in front of parades with very sensitive signs. But before we let ourselves off the hook, you know, those are those kind of people. It's also those of us who don't understand our context. It's also those of us who can't imagine that someone might not be a Christian, who can't imagine that someone might not share our values, those who look down on others with different beliefs, those who don't do the hard work of holding on to the gospel with integrity, yet with a distinct and powerful winsomeness. There's compromising Christians or a compromising response to persecution, then there's callous Christians. But Acts shows us that there's a third type of Christian. And here we move from just looking at fearful persecution to freedom from fear. Where does freedom from fear come from? Compromising callous or, like Peter, a confident Christian, a confident response to persecution or opposition. They don't look for persecution. They don't legitimate themselves by opposition, but they're also not afraid of it. They know suffering is part and parcel to being a follower of Jesus. And then Peter, what does he say when he's called before them, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and notice the confidence here. This person who had denied Jesus three times just seven weeks earlier stands up in front of the most powerful people in Israel and says, rulers and elders of the people, if, you're being called, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Confident. The, San, the Sanhedrin. And in case we might miss the perilous situation that they're in, Luke m- mentions two names, Annas and Caiaphas. It's the very same people who were present at Jesus' trial just about seven weeks ago. And we know how it went for Jesus, right? Peter stands before this same body. Peter, who had denied Jesus three times, stands before them with confidence with directness. And what did the Sadducees, how did they respond? They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, verse 2, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. He's not proclaiming primarily that in Jesus there is resurrection of the dead, and if you want it, then believe in him. That's certainly true and included. But proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection. Resurrection for a, a first century Jew wasn't about life after death. It wasn't, it wasn't being taken away from earth and going up to heaven. But it was the great moment when God would transform everything, that he would literally raise the dead, not just people, but everything that's dead, that he would raise and change the dead world and bring about his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we pray 
each and every week as we pray the Lord's Prayer, that that's the hope of resurrection, that heaven and earth become one. And what these apostles are claiming and why the Sadducees get so disturbed is that that's already happened. It's already begun, that in Jesus is resurrection. The Sadducees were mad because Peter was saying that God had inaugurated a brand new work. He is taking the old story and making it much better and much more beautiful and much more profound. And who's it coming through? Not the religious establishment, not the religious elite, but these uneducated, unsophisticated people like Peter and John. And the Messiah is a no-name carpenter from the middle of nowhere. Peter is not compromising. He's not really callous, but he's confident. And where does the focus go? Does it say because Peter was so strong and because he had grown up in the faith and he was so confident that he stood before them? No. It says Peter, in the power of the Holy Spirit, stood before them and proclaimed these things. The focus is not upon him, but upon Jesus. And he moves this conversation, he moves the challenge, the question about this healing that has just happened. He takes that and he then translates that and moves, it, moves the story from that physical healing to salvation, full salvation in Jesus Christ. That in some way, the fact that this man has gotten up and walked and sung and danced and worshipped in Jesus' name demonstrates that resurrection has come and that the healing of the whole world is beginning. So when Peter says salvation is found in no one else, it's not a callous claim. It's not a narrow-minded claim. It's not a totalitarian claim. It's a confident assertion that Jesus is for you and that salvation is offered in his name to anyone who will take hold of it. It's an invitation for you and I to rise with Jesus in this new economy, this new world with the hope that things will one day finally and fully and eternally change. So from freedom to fear, how do we get there? How do we stand before opposition, verbal rejection, persecution like Peter with confidence? And the key is not ultimately about being brave like Peter and John. And it's not simply trying to emulate them or any other hero. Fearlessness is not the goal, but it's the byproduct. It's the byproduct of knowing that Jesus was fearless for you. It's knowing that Jesus sweated blood so that you don't have to. It's knowing that he went to the cross for you, that he rose again for you. It's a new identity that's not based upon what other people say is significant about you. It's not based upon what you say is significant about you, but it's based upon what God says is significant about you. And your significance is that you are a creature made lovingly in his image. And even when you went astray, even when you walked away from him, that he chased after you 
and brought salvation and healing. And that your identity is now a new creature. If you're a Christian, your new identity is wrapped up in him. And it can never be taken away. It can never even change. That the whims of other people's opinions, the whims of your own self-opinion, can change and fluctuate daily and hourly. But Jesus' opinion never wavers. That's what's happened in Peter's life. What did he just experience? He experienced being befriended by Jesus and then betraying him and walking away and Jesus restoring him and including Peter in to his resurrection and saying, Peter, it's done. It's over. You're forgiven. Here's grace. Come and enjoy the resurrection with me. And as that begins to rest in your soul, as you see yourself as a Peter, as you see yourself as someone who has walked away from Jesus, and in spite of that, that he chases after you and grabs hold of you and goes to the cross with you in mind and then is raised from the dead on your behalf, as the Holy Spirit begins to drive that down deep within your heart and your affect as well as your, your head, you can begin to see yourself turning from defending yourself. You can begin to diminish that need of justifying yourself. You can begin to poke holes in that instinct to protect yourself. And like Peter, you can begin to choose to focus upon Jesus and what he has done rather than what anyone else could do or say about you. Peter and John realize this moment is not about the Sanhedrin. It's not about your boss at work. It's not about the kids at at school thinking you're cool. It's not about keeping hold of the, the woman or man of your dreams. It's all about the fact that Jesus is keeping hold of you, the Jesus who went to the cross for you, the Jesus who rose for you, who is living and reigning and healing crippled lives every day. Peter says, it's not about me. In the power of the Holy Spirit, he stands and says, it is Jesus of Nazareth. In him is the resurrection. He is the one who's really on trial here, not Peter, not John. It is Jesus and his claim that he is Lord of everything. And Peter knows, Peter has experienced in the past few weeks that in his sin, that he's as helpless as that lame man in Acts 3, that he is sitting there unable to walk, unable to work, cordoned off from the community, knowing that he cannot save himself. Peter knows that as he betrays Jesus. I cannot climb my way back into God's favor. It is only only Jesus that can heal us. And as we know him, as we begin to trust him, as we begin to believe him in these situations where we may be opposed, we may be disliked, we may be persecuted, and we see him wiping away our tears, and wiping away our fears. Repeatedly, we can grow into that freedom from fear. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for each of us here 
wherever we find ourselves this morning, if it's still questioning, still wondering, still having big questions about whether this is all true and makes sense and whether a man could get up and walk, whether Jesus could be resurrected, and not only that, that we could be included in that resurrection, or if we've believed this for many years but are having trouble figuring out how it is real to us, how we can begin to practically live out that freedom from fear. Lord, would you step into each of our lives and help us by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.